Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I just happen to be married to one. My co-host today is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for 20-plus years. Can we not take that out of the script? Yeah, we'll talk about it. Oh. And a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many leadership roles. In fact, a lot of our listening audience have met Sharon and know Sharon. So... Our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs. We feel like today we have a great show that will definitely do both of those. And we're continuing our CRNA historical series today. And we're going to be talking about the National Commission Nurse Anesthesia Education. Today, we have two former presidents of the ANA, and we are so lucky to have both of them in the house. And they just happen to be married to each other, Richard and Sandy Ouellette. And we're going to call him Dick instead of Richard. Dick is one of two nurse anesthetists to be elected as president twice of the ANA. All right, pop quiz. Oh, do you know who the other one was? Mm, I do not know. Peggy McFadden from oh, Kentucky. Okay, see, Sharon, that's why I have you around. Oh, well, you know got to be good for something. All right. During his first term, direct reimbursement was passed, and one month after leaving office. During his second term, his priority was saving our nurse anesthesia program, 60 of which closed between 1982 and 1989, following the federal reimbursement legislative victory. So let's start with Dick. So what events led to the AANA fight for direct reimbursement during your first term as AANA president? Okay, we had started looking at uh, direct reimbursement, actually going back to earlier than that, about 1982, when Pat Fleming was the president, and we were looking for direct reimbursement for various reasons. Number one, obviously, we were looking for it for our own personal, since we were doing all the work, we wanted to be paid for it and all. That was number one. But then if you think at that time, we started to uh, come forth where Medicare was really, the cost of Medicare had grown increasingly over the years, a great big part of the uh, gross national products. So they ended up deciding that they were going to be revamping Medicare. And if you remember at that time, we were talking about the DRGs, they were talking about prospective payment system and all. And when we were looking at that, we started realizing that whatever system they were talking, there was going to be a disincentive to some of our members because our members ended up being either physician employed hospital employed or self-employed. A prospective payment system or DRG would have been advantageous to the hospitals 
what the nurse anesthetist employs, but those nurse anesthetists who are physician employed, how is payment going to go to them? And if you look, you think you're independent contracting nurse anesthetists, they could always contract with the hospital and get their monies that way. But here we had a very big disincentive for one system or the other, depending on the employment of the nurse anesthetist. And that was one of the major big reasons why we continued to push for it. And from 82, it took us from 82 to 86 before we finally were able to achieve the direct. Now, remind us what year were you president the first time, Dick? First time I was president was 85, 86. Okay. And then somebody came in between you two. Yeah, following uh, me was Peggy McFadden. Okay. And following Peggy McFadden was Jan Benito. Yeah. Okay. And then it was, and then it was you. Okay. And then me again. So, Dick, what was going on in 1990 when you served as president the second time around? Well, as from the time the direct reimbursement went into effect, although we weren't really being paid at the time, but it had, you know, we were in the process of developing that, the ASA was still continuously closing down our programs. But what was the major, major concern of the whole thing was the fact that by 1989, we were graduating 559 graduates. Where prior to that, we were doing 1,200 a year on an average. And with that 1,200, it was enough to replace those who were retiring, keeping up with the new positions that were open up and still leaving a very open field. So what happened in 1990, we realized that things needed to change because, again, at that same time, the AA programs were going to end up being proliferated. And if we didn't do anything to start increasing our numbers back to where they used to be or better, they would find replacements. So that's where the AAs could have been really kind of proliferated and come up. So we had to do something with the schools. And that's when, uh, when I was president-elect to Sandy, that's when I was looking at various things and kept, we started thinking about setting up a commission, some sort of sort to look into this whole area of how we could turn around and turn things around and, and increase our student graduates. So why was the ASA coming after the programs at that particular time? Seeing yeah, I think I was sort of injured by that a little bit, directing the program at Wake Forest University. It was part of the hospital, uh, Baptist Hospital at the time. But, you know, the best way to get rid of your competitor is to get rid of the educational programs. And we had become a competitor. That would when, do it. When we get into Part B, Everyone. which had always been designated for physician reimbursement, and when we were allowed entry into that sacred reimbursement mm-hmm. pool, you know, it was very obvious we were a competitor. And so you can say what you want. And they used many, many different reasons for these programs closing. But, you know, it was very obvious that this was a reason. My own program in 1988, it was the same year that the residency and program increased to a fourth year. And I was called into the hospital administrator's office and said that I would have to reduce yet again enrollment into the program the following year down to eight students. And we had more vacancies at our institution than that, right at that one place. And I remember saying, this isn't right. And I remember him telling me, right has nothing to do with it, it's where the power is. 
And I've carried that throughout my professional life because, I need to write that because it's absolutely true. Now, Dick may remember we were talking with the Federal Trade Commission at that time. I remember a meeting in Washington, D.C., where we, we were all in the gym that morning before our, our meetings began and came back to the room and they cut off the water in the hotel at the Marriott. Do you remember that? And so we'd just come from the gym and we had no place to take a bath to go to coffee and start our meeting. But we were very, very communicating very heavily with the Federal Trade Commission over this. But Dick, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what we got from then showed me the smoking gun and we didn't have the smoking gun. They always said, like in my own program, well, there's not enough of certain type cases for all these nurse anesthesia students and residents. And so we're just going to to reduce your number. Let me ask you one other question, Sandy. You brought up a very good point about 19, whenever we got direct reimbursement. Mm -hmm. Now, there had been a significant case that we'll talk about in another podcast in 1917. So obviously we had been at loggerheads with the ASA before, but what I just heard you say is this is when it really, the rubber hit the road with the sacred pool getting direct reimbursement. That is correct because there had been conflict, the sort of waxes and wanes since, you know, the, American Society of Anesthesiologists was formed in 1935. By 1937, they had a written document about how they were going to eliminate nurse anesthetists. So it certainly has always been there. But I'm telling you, when you go after the money in Part B Medicare, which was always all theirs until this conversation began and we did have this legislative victory, it was total war. It was the most dangerous step by the American Society of Anesthesiologists toward our very survival that we had seen at that time. Do you disagree, Dick? He better not disagree with you. That is correct. (laughs) correct. He's had lots of practice saying he agrees. Yes, I agree. (laughs) He is not a stupid man. (laughs) He'll be sleeping on the couch in my office. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, Dick, what were your goals in appointing the commission? Kind of in a nutshell, I want to do something that would end up increasing our number of graduates per year. I wasn't sure exactly how it was going to be done, where it was being done, how it was all of I mean, I had looked at maybe we needed to set up our own college, our own university, where all the uh, didactics would be done at that point, and then people would go out to the various hospitals to do their clinical thought of so many things and then finally decided maybe we need to go to the people who are involved. And that's where we came, I uh, come up with the idea of the commission talking with John God and, and Ira Gunn at the time and many of them, thinking of putting a commission of getting a group of people, and I think we ended up with about almost 20 people looking at deans of schools of nursing, directors of nurse anesthesia programs who were in allied health, who were in individual hospitals, or who were under the schools of medicine, and bring them all together. Them, and also bringing in an economist. We had an economist on board. We brought an anesthesiologist on board as well. 
And uh, too bad you didn't have social media at that time because that would have blown <laughs> it up. So we ended up having uh, a hospital, conference hospital, uh, financial directors, and all of that. And at the time, Sandy was again the commission to get it going really quick. I really got the approval of Sandy's board to go ahead and do it. So when I became president. August, we could be hitting the road with the commission, which we did almost immediately the following month because we had it all appointed and ready to go. And uh, Sandy ended up being the chair, and the commission got started and they went on their way. Great. Sandy, it sounds like that was a lot of work. Why don't you give us a little thumbnail of what all that you had to get done? Well, it, it was a lot of work, and uh, we were under extreme pressure because programs were closing every month. You know, that's a huge hit. It happened in eight years that 60 programs closed. Think of what it would have been in just eight more years mm -hmm. if another 60 programs had closed. We would have been sitting there perhaps with 20 programs, 30 programs, and there would have been absolutely no way we could have been a viable provider of anesthesia services in this country. And it had to be done quickly. And that was a pressure that I think we all felt. We had a wonderful group of people and Dick said close to 20, I think it was about 17 or so. And he, he's told you the, the types, it was many, many people, not just nurse anesthetists, but from many disciplines. And uh, it was very helpful to have that anesthesiologist and get that view as well as the economist and hospital administrators, large hospitals, small hospitals, and so on. And so we had to organize as a large group. It's too big to work in unison with all the same projects. So we divided this commission into two areas. One was involved with uh, faculty, faculty retention, faculty development, and the other was with programs. And as I recall, I chaired the program part and Dr. Marge Callahan chaired the faculty part of that. And so we started to work and we had only nine months, only nine months. To and this was just during snail mail. You didn't even uh, have yeah. email. Yes. You just did phone calls. We had meetings. We had two or three meetings. Mm -hmm. We had a very strict timeline. And if you ever have an opportunity to see the commission report, it will show how the work was divided into these two major areas with strict timelines. And at the end of this timeline, this has to be done, this has to be done, this has to be done. And I must say, it was a very difficult time for me because my late husband was very, very ill at that time. And uh, he, in fact, passed away in uh, December of 1990. And this report had to be in in October of that year. And so I remember that the report actually was written with the very strong help of our staff and consultants. That would have been Rita Rupp and Ira Gunn. And I could not leave Winston-Salem area. And so when we, we decided that the report was ready to be written, they came to Winston-Salem and we wrote it at the home of one of our commissioners, Dr. Pat Chamings, who was dean of the School of Nursing at UNCG. And it was written at her dining room table in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina. And so, yeah, we were quite busy, but it, we did meet that goal. So by October that year, the uh, commission report was finalized. Andy, what were some of the recommendations made by commissioners? 
there were about eight overall recommendations. And the one that was probably most prominent was we had to come up with action steps. And each one, there were eight goals. The commission ended with eight major goals. And each of these goals had numerous action steps under each goal. The first one was to increase the number of annual graduates from North Anesthesia educational programs by expanding of existing programs and development of new programs. That became very, very interesting to watch that unfold because the success of the commission really did not have a lot to do with opening a lot of new programs. It had 100% to do with expanding clinical sites and thus increasing the capacity in every single program. For example, in my own program, we had eight students. We went to 12, we went to 14. And by the time I retired from that program in 2005, we had 25 students and we could have taken more if we wanted. So that was the thing that really made the difference in having this a success. And these hospitals were very willing to become clinical sites, you see, because when the doctors had closed through their little mechanisms, 60 programs, there was a shortage. And all of, the, all of these hospitals were crying for CRNA assistance. So in my own area, not only in, in Winston-Salem, but many places in the surrounding area, and we developed one site after another, and every program did the same thing. So that about a year or two later, we had increased to 90 programs, but there were more clinical sites. So we had gone, we had almost doubled our annual graduates. We were graduating in about a, a thousand per year at that time. And of course, we wanted to make nurse anesthesia education, a second goal, more attractive career option and establish a recruiting and replacement service for CRNA faculty. You know, it was very difficult to get faculty. Faculty have many, many obligations, and sometimes they are very much underappreciated, particularly in terms of program directors. And you have to remember, in terms of where we are now for our economic returns, in 1986-87, CRNAs, their annual salary was what, did you remember, 25000 30 somewhere. 30,000. So we felt that that was going to change with the legislative victory for direct reimbursement to an extent, but we had to make other things more attractive. And so we worked on that. So what were program directors making about that time? You uh, were a program director. Well, right? program directors were making about the same thing. I mean, then and now, in order to have any program directors, they have got to keep uh, compensation Parity. pretty equal to what that program director could mm -hmm. be uh, generating if they worked in a clinical job. Most of them were paid by chief nurse and that's the clinical. Right. And so they had them on kind of the same level. Now, didn't y'all make a recommendation about the number of programs you talked about that just one of the other recommendations? Didn't you guys give a recommendation about the number of programs that we needed to top out at? I don't think it was ever anything officially in the report. I think in terms of talking and looking at what we needed for the future, I think we all agreed we did not need 142 programs again. That's what we had in 1982 when this decline started. Somewhere in all of our minds, it would have been about 100 programs with multiple clinical sites so that you would have a large number of students or an adequate number of students in each of the programs. 
but I don't think it was ever a part of the mm -hmm. official report, but it certainly was in all of, all of our minds. And so we wanted to help people write grants. We wanted to recognize faculty. And so without going through all of these eight goals, if anyone's interested, the commission report is still available. But one of the things, even today, the awards that are given at opening ceremonies of the ANA Annual Congress, the Program Director of the Year, the Clinical Instructor of the Year, the Didactic Instructor of the Year, all of that came out of commission recommendations at this particular time. I don't time. believe that I even knew that. I don't believe you did either I, because when you were uh, <laughs> when you were serving in Salt Lake City, you even sort of said, I don't know where this came from, but it's kind of a nice thing. <laughs> Now, I would like for you to go over those eight goals because how many pages are in that commission report, Sandy? About 200. Okay, well, I don't see people <laughs> reading that. Uh -huh. The reason is uh, about but, 200 pages is a lot of people, there were white papers that were developed uh, okay. that were put in there. So a lot uh, of, of that commission report really is white papers. And okay. those white papers not only appeared in the commission report, but they were published in our journal. Remember okay. that, Dick? Mm -hmm. Quite a few of them were published yes. in our journal. Each month, one would be published. Mm -hmm. Try to stimulate interest uh, here. Okay. So, so yeah, well, so the third goal was to secure more equitable treatment of CRNAs, nurse anesthesia students and graduates, and all reimbursement guidelines and policies. And, Still um, a goal today. Yes. Yeah. And developing program directors and faculty to provide effective leadership. And we did make quite a bit of stride in that. But it's interesting, when I co-chaired the doctoral task force, we were looking at when we could possibly reach doctoral entry. And it was decided to be in 2025. We waited that long because even in 2005, 2006, only one point. 2% of all CRNAs had a doctorate, and that included attorneys. So we knew we didn't have the faculty. Faculty has always been a struggle, and we continued to work on that. The fifth goal was to promote interprofessional collaboration between CRNAs and anesthesiologists to enhance education, uh, anesthesia education. That was extremely important. Today, if you look at where we are, it would not be easy for anesthesiologists to close programs because they're so well ingrained in university systems and so well respected in those systems. But we cannot produce nurse anesthetists without a broad-based clinical education. And whether we like it or not, the anesthesiologists are the gatekeepers of those operating rooms. And so if we ever saw, and I call it an assault, it was an assault on our programs. If we ever saw a similar assault, it would not be to close programs. It would be to close clinical sites. And that worries me. It worries me even to this day, and especially right now with where we are. So we wanted to try to work in collaboration, at least at the local level. Now, it's been obvious when we talk about the two major organizations and that one has been intense on destroying the other since 1937, you can't work collaboratively at that level. But when you get to the local level and your focus is on taking care of patients safely in a quality uh, atmosphere and involving all members of the team and reimbursement models, that's very, very important as well. It's easier to work collaboratively with those anesthesiologists that you see every day and work with every day. And I think we should continue that. 
to the best of our ability, SCRNAs. A sixth goal was to market nurse anesthesia and nurse anesthesia education. And we did have a huge PR marketing platform there and to enhance student registered nurse anesthetist awareness and understanding of professional issues as they relate to education practice and research. And then the final was to develop funding and staffing mechanisms to accomplish the commission's recommendation. That was important because we hired three staff people in the ANA office to carry on the work of this commission. And then five of the commissioners, including myself, I was one of them, were appointed after this report was released to oversee for the next few years the outcome and to make sure that all the I's were dotted and all the T's were crossed and all these action steps were in fact taken care of. There was a Dr. Frails who was brought on board. Kathy Masterpiece was the other one. Yes, yes. Dr. Frails was brought on board to help program directors write grants. Dr. Kathy Mastropetro that Dick just mentioned and Nancy Lindauer were brought in full time in the office for a number of years. And they were on a, on a daily basis implementing the goals of this particular task force. And so all that was very interesting. One of these hires was a development director. And then another one was to assist the director of education and research. And then we had the grant writer there. Now, I never will forget when I brought President Willette here, this final report. And you remember it was um, you know, at your board meeting and we told the board, this is the biggest priority that you have. If we do not fix this, there's not gonna be any need to fix anything else. Do you remember that, Dick? And do you remember I said, and we have a cost of this of $1.5 million. I thought Dick nope. was going to choke. This, this <laughs> was, the commission this, wow. uh, yeah. it wasn't just funding the commission, but for the implementation right. of this report. And, and I will forget it because, you know, $1.5 is a lot of money now. You look at how much money it was 30 years ago. They and I hadn't seen anything like that. And right. I, well, how did you feel, Dick, with that well, 1.5 million? In comparison to what your budget was. Well, the thing is, it kind of hit us in the board. But as we looked at it, I said, well, this is not going to be all paid out in one lump sum. It would be stretched out. Right. Over we didn't even have time. a strategic reserve fund at that time. <laughs> no, <we didn't. laughs> and so, but the board approved it. And we knew we had to do something or we were going to be replaced by AAs. We were going to lose everything. We had to put the money there. As you look back, it was definitely worth it. Then. Oh, absolutely. Now, how many clinical sites do we have nationwide now, Sandy? <clears throat> the last time I talked to uh, Dr. Frank Gervasi and the uh, Council on Accreditation, I had to ask that question for some reason. It was probably a number of months ago, but it was like 1,800. So if you've got, give or take, 120 programs, there are 1,800 clinical sites with these programs. And some of them are not full-time sites. You know, I know at our own program, we may have some that are, are part-time, but uh, for the most part, they are 1,800 clinical sites. And that was the key. It was the absolute key to pulling this off without a doubt. All right, numbers guy over there. There used to be 140 programs, and most of them were housed in one place where you got your clinical training, just like Baptist. Whenever I first started, we were only at Baptist, and then we got farmed out 
later on whenever Sandy got all these clinical sites. So that's only 100 and probably 140 clinical sites for 140 programs, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. And then so, all right, do the math. Wow, what math up do you to want one, me to do? Up to one, 1,800. That's, That's pretty big, substantial over that time period. Cop out. <laughs> this man, this, this man to put me multiplies <laughs> license plates going down the road. I'm like Rain Man. You know? So like I look at 1989, you know, 9 times 9 is 81, 81 times 8 is 648, 6 times 4 is 24 times 8. You know, it was 192, See, 19 times 2 is 38, 3 times 8 is 24, I mean. 2 times 4 is 8, 8 times 0 is 0. And then I factor it down because I'm weird like that. You know? So, you know, we talked about the number of programs. When I went to anesthesia school in 1968, there were over 220 programs around the country because any hospital who ended up having a little shortage of nurses, the anesthesiologists would go up onto the floors and say, oh, you want to be a nurse anesthetist? And ended up bringing them down to an OJT training. And, you know, we're proved that it was only after we got in with DOD and got accreditation that these programs could never meet that. That's why we really had the biggest drop at that point. So by the time... You know, by mid-70s, maybe you know, about mid-70s, we were down to about 140 programs. But most of these programs now, we're looking into moving into the baccalaureate level. We had one or two master's programs, and then evolution went on. But, you know, you're absolutely right, Dick. But the programs that closed, and there was many programs that closed, as you mentioned, when accreditation standards became more rigid, but the number of graduates remained the That's same right. until right. this other thing happened. The assault. Uh, because We're you know, even though the even though the, the, <laughs> the programs had fallen quite a bit, what was left expanded in terms of the numbers that they admitted. So we were graduating what twelve hundred and even after a loss of tons of programs, we were still graduating twelve hundred people a year. That's because everybody wants to be a CRNA. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm telling you, at that time, you know, again, a lot of these small hospitals, rather than recruiting, they would train them on their own. and They couldn't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. So as a result, the nurse anesthesia programs that were did needed to pick up. Like we had about eight or nine programs back in Massachusetts at the time, and they all had maybe two or three students. Mm -hmm. So the programs, you know, started to expand and taking more students in. Yeah. So when you look at where we are today, the average CRNA being age 50, you know, how many programs, how many students we're pumping out today? I mean, do you, do you see the shortage now or do we, or does the future look bright? I mean, what, what is your uh, thoughts on that? I don't know that we certainly don't have a shortage like we had when those 60 programs closed. I think people, all of our graduates find jobs. They may not have as many to choose from as they did back in those lean, lean days but they're they're certainly there and one of the things is a decentralization of where anesthesia services mm. need to be because back at the time of the commission we weren't doing everything in these off sites we didn't have all these endoscopy clinics there weren't right. need for crna services in dental offices ambulatory surgery yeah. was just stopped. right yeah. and so i think you know i, I haven't looked quite frankly at workforce right now, but just from looking at the students that are graduating from the program here, they seem to find jobs. It, it may not be 
uh, 20 to choose from, but they certainly are not without work. Right. The COA keeps that data on the vacancy rates and all of that kind of stuff. Might be interesting to take a look. Well, Jeremy, you didn't realize you were going to be sitting in a room with this with greatness in here today. Now, did you? I actually did. Well, you you look you look back and this really was a crucial point in our history. And if there would not have been the foresight, the wisdom and a workhorse like Sandy to move this forward, you always used to tell us we could have died on the vine. That's correct. And, you know, in terms of my thoughts as we wrap this up, I have two, and one is just a very fond memory, and one is a message to always keep your back to the wall. The first is, as I said, my late husband was very, very sick. And um, so after the commission report had been accepted, President Willett was having a reception in his suite, and I was invited to go up there. They had a surprise, and um, that surprise was that they were going to honor my husband as an honorary member of the ANA. And I don't remember, I think it was about, he was about the third, the third. Third, third honorary member of mm-hmm. the ANA. And for those of, of you listening that may not know, my husband was a neurosurgical ICU nurse, but he was so supportive. There would have been very few husbands that would have let me run all over the country like I did most of my career except and, for this one yeah, that's he right. let you do <laughs> that's <too. right>. with um <laughs> and the support that i got so that was very very nice and i remember being in atlanta and um you gave him that award that night and that was you know only four months before he passed away and i remember you were on one side of chow and john guard was on the other and right now in front of my desk there is a picture of Chow, John, and Dick. And when Dick and I got married in 1994, I told Mr. John Guard, you better hope nothing happens to Dick because you're next. (laughs) (laughs) And as only John John could say, he said, now don't get crazy. (laughs) That's what John said. Um, But really, that was a very nice time. And, And he was given that honor. Um, in recognition of all spouses, like mm-hmm. Pierce shared, like your husband and, and all husbands and wives that certainly, um, you know, support their spouse in this CRNA journey. And one other thing I wanted to say, we have to be very careful if we look at where we are now and some of the, the things that our organization feels very passionate about in terms of our name change to nurse anesthesiologist to perhaps a resolution that could be passed to change our ANA into American Association of Nurse Anesthesiologists. You know, we have to be very aware of what these people are capable of doing. Now, as I've talked to people that did not live those times, they feel that nothing can happen that already in happening. I believe something could happen that's not already happening. And I hope it's all going to work out because our members, quite a few of them really want this, but we've got to watch out for our programs. And as I said, the attack will not come to the program, it'll come to the clinical sites, should it be another assault. 
So I think we, we have to be careful and forever mindful and have a plan B ready. If this is what we want, so be it. Let's go for it. But we better have plan B ready should we see another surge of what we saw in 1989. So we have two visionaries here, obviously. So you could have your druthers. What would a plan B like? I mean, should we be looking at what happens uh, if we need to come up with clinical sites or any thoughts on that? I don't or, know. Or we've worn you out. No, no. It's just, Dick? No, I think it's one of those things we have to see what's happening. Yeah. And then, you know, because we don't know what will be what will be repercussions. You know, will it be cleaning, cutting down on the clinical sites or cutting out people? The thing that, you know, having been in a clinical area all my life and all that, I just can't picture them trying to get rid of us because they're not going to all sit down and do anesthesia. Trust me. What I'd be concerned about and need to watch is if they don't start to push us out and start to proliferate the AAs. That would be my biggest concern right there. That's to me is how they would do it. We'd have to watch carefully because they're not going to sit down. They're going to want somebody else. And, you know, they've got these AA programs, you know, that are on the dockets in most places, but have not really opened, they can proliferate them and, you know, put out graduates saying within two years and fill those seats so that they don't have to sit down and do it. I think we could do another whole podcast on that one, talking about AAs and uh, the lowest so. cost providers and so forth. Now, so. That's, you talk about lowest cost providers, you know, this was the thing that I think absolutely burnt me the most about the whole direct reimbursement is that the last minute when it was come through that the AAs were included and in direct reimbursement and they didn't spend one penny. <laughs> We're the ones who did right. all the work and they got put in. Again, it was the anesthesiologist. Well, how about the AAs that work for us? Emory and all of them and they got put in automatically, so they're paid on the same level as the CRNAs. Their payment is the same as the CRNAs because we're under there. Sandy, you've always said something about that, about AAs. You used to tell us if they made the same. Yes, that's right. You know, a lot of my colleagues, and I understand where they're coming from, get so aggravated when they learn that uh, an anesthesiology assistant makes the same salary that they make. That has never worried me as much because if they made half of what we made or a third of what we made, they can only work with anesthesiologists. So they're going to be in those departments and be paid by anesthesiologists. And if they could find these people, then they could pay them a third of what they pay nurse anesthetists there'd be a lot more interest in developing these programs. Absolutely. I believe that it, is It all brilliant. comes down to the dollars in one way or the other, correct? Of course, leave it to the money man. <laughs> there you go. To say that. Well, I, I think that's a wrap. It was a wonderful show. We want to thank you both for being here. We want to thank our listeners. Listen to Beyond the Mask. And this is Jeremy Stanley. And Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a review. Until next time.
Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and everywhere else that streams podcasts. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. 